also good to see uh, two of our uh, wonderful missionaries in town, Robin and Karen Wood from Camp Allendale, um, longtime uh, friends and members and missionaries of Coast Bible Church. It's really nice to have you here. And Craig Blair, uh, also a longtime member of the church and missionary to Russia through Campus Crusade. Uh, we appreciate both of your work and your labor for the Lord, and we as a church are behind you, and we love you. So thank you for coming today. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we pause right now, and we turn our hearts to you, and we attune our minds to your word. We open our eyes, Father, and we are going to begin to look into your truth at this time. And we pray, Father, that this would be a, a time of transformation. We pray that this would be a time in which we see your word afresh. We see your truth made clear. And we see our lives changed as a result of it. Father, we pray for this uh, time of study and looking into your precious scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have in my pocket my wife's wedding ring. I took it from her this morning and she was panicking where it, where it went. No, I'm just kidding. I, I took it from her when, when we got here. And this wedding ring here has uh, special, special significance to us. Because you see, the center diamond within this wedding ring was, uh, I, I purchased it while I was in Costa Rica, which is... For those of you who know anything about diamonds, which is a very, uh, there's many diamond mines in Costa Rica. And so I purchased this while I was in college. I purchased the center diamond. And would you believe it? I carried it in a box in my pocket for a whole month because I was studying over there. So I would be, I'd be studying my Spanish courses and walking through the, the, the nation and, and seeing all these different places. And all the while, I had a diamond in my pocket. It was not a very good place to keep a diamond. But, uh, but I had nowhere else to turn. Now, if there's anything about diamonds that we know, we know that diamonds are precious. Diamonds are the most precious of all the gems. I'm going to put this back in my pocket. If any of you find this around, you'll know whose it is. I didn't lose it in Costa Rica. I shouldn't lose it today. But diamonds are extremely precious gems. They, when we look upon a diamond, we think, wow, that is beautiful. But many of us have no idea, no concept of what is behind the process of making a diamond. Let me share with you a few things. Did you know this? There are no less than at least six long processes to make a diamond. First, you've got to mine the diamond. You've got to find the diamond in a mine. Over 250 tons of mining is accomplished to yield one carat of a diamond. 250 tons of mining. And about 20% of these diamonds are... Uh, only 20% are suitable to be put on a ring. 250 tons and only one out of five is suitable to be put on a ring. These mines are 75 miles deep. After the, after the diamond is mined, there's a process which is called marking. 
Now this process is done as you examine each diamond. The person examines the diamond and attempts to mark the diamond, to understand the diamond, to cut it in such a way that it would yield the most value. It's a very intricate process. Third, there's what's called cleaving the diamond. This is a process in which the stone is sent to a cleaver, and his job is to cut the diamond into two, or cut the diamond into different places to establish that final cut, that final perfect cut that would yield the greatest value. And then there's a process called sawing, in which they put the diamond in a, in a, a what do you call those things? A vice, there you go. They put the diamond in a vice, and they begin to saw at the diamond, but you know you can only cut a diamond with a diamond. And so they put diamond dust, if you will, on the saw so that the diamond can be cut because it is such a difficult metal to cut. And then there's a process which, uh, which is finally called polishing. And this polishing is, is going around the 58 facets of the diamond. There have been 58 cuts made in this diamond traditionally. And now the process is to polish it and to make smooth all the rough edges and to get it just right to be placed in a ring or in a necklace. You see, the process of creating a quality diamond is long and arduous. And it is no simple task. And we look at a diamond in our wedding ring today and we think, oh, how beautiful. But sometimes we fail to realize the process and how much work and effort went into that beautiful gem. What I want to talk about today is a prophecy in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. And this prophecy is one that we know all too well. The title of my message is Behind the Christ Prophecies. And this prophecy in particular is found in verse 6. For unto us a child is born. In fact, let's read the prophecy in its entirety in verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called a Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We look upon this prophecy and we see a diamond. We see a precious, precious gem of Scripture. And we say, wow, what a glorious prophecy. But again, often what we fail to realize is the process, the work, the history that went into this prophecy. What was behind these words of Isaiah as he spoke on behalf of the Lord? What was the history of the day? What was occurring in that context? Why in the world did he use these kinds of words that we celebrate and sing about in hymns today? But when we learn and appreciate the history, when we learn about the context, we find a greater appreciation for the diamond. And likewise, we find a greater appreciation for God's Word. We find greater confidence when we understand the history of the prophecy. And we find it to be of greater, much greater worth. What is behind this great prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ? We're continuing on in our series in the prophecies of Isaiah. And our study today in chapter 8, verses 19 to chapter 9, verse 7, is very much a continuation of what we learned two weeks ago. 
I want to take just a moment and bring you back to where we are in the story. Bring you up to speed for a few moments, and then we're going to read our text today. So take a look here. Here's some main characters that you are going to want to pay attention to in our story today. The main characters are these. First, there's Isaiah. Isaiah is God's prophet, prophesying in approximately 730 B.C. at this time. 730 B.C. Another character in the story is King Ahaz of Judah. King Ahaz is not a very good king in the southern kingdom of Israel. And yet, God has an eye to protect Judah, his people. Third, there's King Pekah of Israel. And King Pekah and the fourth, King Rezin of Syria, these two are allied against one another and are fighting against Judah and King Ahaz. The northern kingdom of Israel, who was split from the southern kingdom about 200 years ago, they are now fighting their own people. A civil war is occurring. And third, and fifth, we have King Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria. Now here's a new character in the story. A pagan nation, a terrible and pagan king is going to enter our story today. Take a look at a map here just so you can see a little bit of, of where we are geographically. Uh, a little bit difficult to see. Maybe we could dim the lights just a tad, the, the, those top lights there. Uh, as you can see in Orange. Aram is also called Syria. That's the territory of King Rezin. King Rezin of Syria. In the green, we see the northern kingdom of Israel. That's the territory of King Pekah. King Pekah. Green and orange are allied against purple, which is Judah at the very bottom of your screen. And that only depicts a portion of Judah. There's much more to the south. And so you can see here where these nations are aligned on the map. And to the north of Aram, or Syria you will find Assyria who is beginning to gain power and come to the south. Okay. Now what did we learn last week in our prophecy that carries over into today? It is this. King Ahaz of Judah in the south, in in purple, was being approached by king is the king of Israel and the king of Syria from the north. And he was crying out for help, saying, we need help. We can't do this battle alone. And God offers help. If you remember our study two weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 7, God says, King Ahaz, I will protect you. I will protect you. Israel and Syria will not prevail against you. And you can choose any sign you wish, and I will grant it to you that you might believe me. God promises Ahaz, nothing will occur to you. Your nation will be preserved. I will not allow Israel and resin of Syria to come over you. But Ahaz, he refuses. He refuses God. He refuses God. He does not ask for a sign as God had requested of him in Isaiah 7. Instead, he shuns his face at God. And yet, God has promised him protection. God has promised him that Syria and Israel would not come against him. And as he rejects this sign, God says, that's okay, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to give you something to note in your history that will occur, that will demonstrate clearly that I am protecting you. 
And so we came to that great prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. The virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You and I understand that prophecy when we read it on a very cursory level. We understand it is simply fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's true. Jesus Christ was a referent, was the final fulfillment of what Isaiah was speaking of in 7.14. But Isaiah had a second child in mind as well. And that first child that was the first fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 we see in this chart here. Remember this chart from two weeks back. There was a woman and a son that was going to be a sign to Judah of protection. And we learned two weeks back. I can't go into the details of this. I encourage you to go online and, and, and listen to this message if you are interested because it's a beautiful study. But we learned that the prophecy had an 8th century fulfillment in Isaiah's second son. I won't pronounce his name. (laughs) Isaiah, there was an 8th century fulfillment which proved to Judah that a son would be born. In fact, it would be Isaiah's son. He'd be born from the prophetess, Isaiah's wife. And this child, before the child knew the difference between good and evil, God says, your enemies will be deposed. Of course, later on, we look at this prophecy and we see this prophecy ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate one who deposes kings and who institutes His protection of His people and His kingly rule. Some would assume that after this prophecy was fulfilled, because it was fulfilled, King Pekah of Israel and King Rezin of Syria, two years after Isaiah's son was born, they were slain. They were killed, just as Isaiah had prophesied. And some would assume that that Ahaz would turn to God in the face of such a prediction. But he did not. Ahaz persisted in his stubbornness. And now I want to bring you in to the next phase of the story. Why does Ahaz persist in his stubbornness? One reason and one reason alone. Ahaz believes that he himself has secured protection for his nation. Take a look at what Ahaz did as Isaiah was warning him about the coming of Israel and Syria. Look at 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 7-9, to 9, up on your screen. It says this, So Ahaz, knowing that he was going to be invaded by Israel and Syria from the north, this is what he did. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. Verse 8. Look what he does. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried his people captive to Ker and killed Resin. What's unlisted there is that King Pekah also died by his own men. King Pekah had his own problems, pressured by Assyria, but eventually his own men killed him. But look what Ahaz does. He brokers a deal. 
He makes an alliance with a pagan nation, Assyria, to come and help Judah against Israel and Syria to his north. He takes gold and silver out of God's house and gives it to Assyria as a present to put things rather uh, quaintly. God does not like it very much when his gold and his silver go into the hands of pagan nations. But Ahaz looks at this and says, See, I protected my nation. No, no, it wasn't Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 that protected me. It wasn't his second son that was the sign. I was the sign. I brokered the alliance with Assyria and Assyria protected Judah. I am the one who has accomplished this. Rather than paying heed to Isaiah and to Yahweh, the God of Israel, King Ahaz did not believe in God who would protect him. And instead he sought other means. He sought the means of Assyria. A last-ditch effort to preserve his nation. And indeed they were preserved for a time. But as the old saying goes, what goes around, comes around. That's right. And interestingly enough, the same nation, Assyria, the same nation that King Ahaz gave gold and gave silver to, that same nation, just years later, would begin to wreak havoc on Judah herself and on King Ahaz himself. The same nation that he brokered a deal with God would send upon Judah and would pester her and torment her for more than 75 years. In fact, I have one more map. Take a look at what Assyria looks like just 75 years later after Ahaz was in power. Take a look in purple. You you can't quite see Jerusalem, but it's in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen and it's completely overrun. Ahaz's decision and the decision of the poor king's throughout the nations of both Israel and Judah, these decisions, this faithlessness in God, shunning their nose at God, giving gold and silver away from the temple, 75 years later, they were completely overrun by the nation of Assyria. They were nothing more than a puppet nation. Assyria would fight and overtake cities in Judah. They'd impose heavy taxation. They would influence the worship of pagan gods in Judah. And to sum it up, to sum this up as we approach our text today, to sum it up, take a look at Second Chronicles 28 and 19. It says this, For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. That is, king of Judah. But he was king of, of the nation as, as a whole. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. This is the history. And I know this has been... Maybe a bit arduous to, to walk through. You say, wow, that's, that's too much history. Uh, what, what's the point here? Well, this is a story. And we are entering in the next phase of the narrative, of the story. And this is unlike other sermons I would preach. Um, I, I'm not going to go into detail of the intricacies of each verse like I might in an epistle of Paul. Instead, we are to learn from the narrative as a whole. We are to look upon this story and to draw out implications from it, and to get a greater appreciation for why the prophecy of the Christ child was made in it. So look with me now at our text 
today. I want to read a brief paragraph and we will read our text on your outline. You'll notice it says uh, Isaiah 8, 19, 9, 7 is positioned. Take a look at that and I've listed it above. This, this paragraph is important and then we will get to our text. What, what about our text today? Listen to this. Isaiah 8, 19 to 9, 7 is positioned just years or even months before Assyria breaks its alliance with King Ahaz and Judah. Isaiah's son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, has been born in chapter 8, verse 3, just as Isaiah had prophesied in chapter 7. And in accordance with the prophecy, Judah's adversaries, King Pekah of Israel and King Rezin of Syria, have been slain. But King Ahaz and Judah do not attribute this victory to God, as we have said. Instead, they point to King Ahaz's alliance with the pagan nation of Assyria as the cause of their victory. Isaiah is warning King Ahaz and Judah that Assyria will soon break its alliance with Judah and wreak havoc on the land and its people. He is urging King Ahaz and Judah to seek the Lord in this time of national calamity. And though Isaiah is frustrated, frustrated that King Ahaz's rule has led the people of Judah astray, he remains hopeful that a coming ruler will shine new light on Israel, God's people. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. We'll read our text today. We'll go through it. And I think as we understand the history and the process of making a diamond, this context is going to open our eyes to the beauty and magnitude of the prophecy that we see in chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and following to 9, 7. God is speaking to Isaiah in in a rather rhetorical fashion. And Isaiah is later going to relay these words to King Ahaz. And when they say to you, quote, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, It is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. Verse 5. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, and garments rolled in blood, will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, 
Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Okay, let's learn from this story, this narrative. Take a look again at verses 19 to 20. It says, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Okay, a few things here. First, when they say to you, the word you there is in the plural. And again, God is speaking rhetorically to Ahaz, or to Isaiah, who will then convey the message to Ahaz. And God is saying this. He's saying, when the people suggest, when the multitudes suggest to you all, the rest of you, that we should seek out the counsel of mediums and wizards. He says, don't do it. Don't do it. That's dark counsel. That is not the counsel that you should be seeking, King Ahaz and Judah. Should not a people seek their God for counsel? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? By no means, God says. By no means should we resort to soothsayers and mediums and psychics for counsel. And then he offers the most profound statement in verse 20. This this is a, a verse that I am planning to commit to memory because I think it is a very powerful verse. God says this, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The law and the testimony was a figure of saying to the scriptures of the Old Testament at that time, to the recognized teaching of the people of God in Israel, the law, the prophets, the testimony of God. If the counsel that you are receiving, Judah, King Ahaz, if it is not according to the law and the testimony, then there is no light in that council. If the Word of God is not the basis upon which counsel is given, that counsel is darkness. King Ahaz and Judah are seeking to make foreign policy decisions. To put it in modern terms, it's as if uh, we're in a foreign policy crisis and we're trying to figure out what to do. And you know, you know what King Ahaz and Judah are doing? They're going and resorting to necromancy, to conjuring up the dead for counsel. God is saying, there's no light in that. If it's not according to the law and the testimony, it is darkness. And I ask you this very plainly. Where do you go for counsel? When distress comes upon your life, who is your counselor? 
Does that counselor offer advice that is grounded firmly in Scripture? Whether it be a pastor or a psychologist, you know, some some have problems with modern-day psychology, and I, and I, I, just for a brief second, I would say that there are some reservations that I have about some of the practices of psychology. But the bigger issue is this. What is the content of their message? What is the content of the counsel? If the counsel that you are receiving is grounded in God's Word, then that counsel is light, and it is good, and it is to be heeded. But when counsel is given... And it is not according to the law and to the testimony, to the word of God. That counsel is darkness. Be mindful of who you get counsel from. Whether it's marital counseling, financial counseling, spiritual counseling, whatever it is. That counseling, the content of that counsel should always be according to the word of God. What happens when you receive counsel That is dark. Look at verse 21. God says this through Isaiah. They will pass through it, that is the darkness. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God. And look upward. Verse 22. Then they will look to the earth and they'll see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. What motif are you seeing throughout all of this? Darkness. Devoid of light. And we've brought that out in in color there. I'm sorry if the Christmas tree gets in the way a little bit. The, The motif of light and dark is prevalent. And it is not without intention. God is saying very clearly, if the counsel you receive is darkened, then your life will be darkened. You will be hard-pressed. You will go hungry. You will be in anguish. You will curse God. You will be a person that is overcome by evil and sin. Be careful where you get your counsel. King Ahaz and the people of Judah, as a result of darkened counsel, are going to become hard-pressed and hungry. They will be lacking God's blessing. They will be enraged and curse God. And we see the life of King Ahaz, and he was a man that, though not literally cursing God in the Scriptures, he, his, life, his life action showed that he was shunning God entirely. All they find is turmoil and gloom, darkness. A very picturesque example of what it looks like to be given counsel that is devoid of God's truth. But you know what? There's good news. There's always good news in the times of deep despair. If you read the scriptures, you will notice that God delights, He delights in bringing light at the moment of greatest darkness. And so now we are approaching verse 1. And it should come as no surprise in chapter 9, verse 1, that God is going to act decisively to expose darkness with light, a light that is like no other. Let's read together what God is going to do. Take a look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, the gloom, again, notice the motif, darkness, the gloom. The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. 
In Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now the motif changes. No longer is the darkness in view, but the light that is going to expose the darkness, that is going to rid the darkness of its power. And notice the specific nature of this prophecy. We are entering here now into the beginning of this second Christ prophecy in Isaiah. We saw the first in Isaiah 7:14 to 16. We're seeing the second now in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. We are entering into this prophecy. And notice the specific nature of the prophecy. Isaiah, 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, is prophesying of a region of Israel known as Zebulun and Naphtali, from which a great light is going to shine. Now take a look at the map where Zebulun and Naphtali was located. There we go. Again, if we could dim lights just for a second. If you notice in orange and in uh, purple, Naphtali and Zebulun. Naphtali to the north, Zebulun to the south. What you see here is these are two of the original 12 tribes of Israel that were located in the northernmost portion of the land. The northernmost central portion of the land. And it's not without significance that Nazareth, the place of Jesus' growing up years, if you will, was located in the southern part of Zebulun. And it's not without significance that Capernaum, one of the places in which Jesus ministered the most to the north of the Sea of Galilee was located in the land of Naphtali. What is Isaiah doing? He is giving prophetic insight 730 years prior to the birth of Christ into the location, the location, the very origin of the coming of the Christ. Amazing. This should boggle our minds and we should be in awe of this. Okay. Now it says that uh, in verse 1, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her. This is indicating here that Naphtali and Zebulun have been through some tough times. And no kidding, I would say. Because Naphtali and Zebulun are not only the place in which Assyria was coming through and battling Syria and Israel, King Pekah and King Rezin, but they would later on be totally devastated in 722 B.C. by the Assyrian nation. This land would be totally devastated and have to be rebuilt after much warfare and turmoil and the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel. So this was a very war-torn area. But God is saying the gloom, the gloom, the darkness on Naphtali and on Zebulun, it's not going to last forever. It's going to become yet again a glorious land. Verse, the end of verse 1, By way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee, the first century term used to describe that region. We know Jesus is Jesus of Galilee. 
Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, what have they seen? They've seen a great, great light. Those who dwelt in a land, previously the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And we see Matthew. Matthew, uh, Matthew, the gospel writer, understood the significance of this land. And that is why he penned in Matthew chapter 4. Take a look. It says, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum. This is Matthew narrating the life of Christ in chapter 4. He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is in the land of Naphtali, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, oh, they've seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Beautiful, beautiful fulfillment. Okay, now we approach verses 3 and 5 of chapter 9. And there's going to be three looming questions that I want us to be mindful of as we begin to bring to a close this study. Uh, We're looking at four more verses here or so. And these three questions are important to keep in mind. I've listed them on your outline. They are these. Who or what is this light? Well, we are beginning to answer that question now. Secondly, what would be accomplished by this light? And third, how would God's people respond to this light? Take a look at verses 3 to 5. Chapter 9, verses 3 to 5. You have multiplied the nation. And increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. As men rejoice when they, re- when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. And the staff of his oppressor. The rod. The staff of his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor. As in the day of Midian. Verse 5. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle. And garments rolled in blood. Will be used for burning. And fuel of fire. Going back to our first question, who or what is this light? I would venture to say in verse 3, we see here a personalization of this light. God, now speaking through Isaiah, is pointing to this light and saying, you, it's a person. You, light, you have multiplied the nation. Now, the terms we're going to see here are completed action terms. They're they're listed in somewhat in, in a past tense kind of way. Isaiah, in essence, is saying, I am so convinced of this, as God is speaking through me to Ahaz and the people of Judah, that I'm considering this as action that is already completed in this coming light. And so what we are reading here are things that have, in some sense, yet to be ultimately fulfilled, and yet Isaiah understands them to be said and done. They will occur. So we see verse 3, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. A personalization. This is a person who is this light. Secondly, what would be accomplished by this light? Notice in green, you have multiplied the nation. That is, the nation will begin to grow and flourish again. National concerns here. Let's not look at this prophecy with simply our 21st century eyes and say, you know, yeah, it's about Jesus. Okay, let's move on. Notice what he is saying. He is telling a people, Judah in particular, 
a war-torn people, a nation that is going south fast, a nation that has a king, Ahaz, who is wicked and who is leading his people astray. Look at the hope. You have multiplied the nation. That is ringing so true in the ears of those of Judah. They want their nation to flourish again. They look around and they see nations warring against them. They see Assyria coming from the north. A nation they allied with who is now turning against them. And they say, oh Lord, how can we get away from this oppressor? And what does the prophecy go on to say? What will the light accomplish? He will break the yoke of his burden. He will break the staff of his shoulder. He will break the rod of his oppressor. National concerns here. The people resonated with this prophecy. As in the days of Midian, if you want to read in Judges 7, Gideon, the battle of Midian, great and glorious battle for Israel, and and, and Isaiah the prophet is, is... Uh, reminding the people of that battle, that victory of God, and saying this will be a day like that, but only better. A third question. How would God's people respond to this light? Notice in red, one of joy. One of joy. They would rejoice. This would be a time of national joy. A light would come. A person would come who would accomplish these great and mighty acts Flourish the nation again. Break the rod of the oppressor. And we will respond with joy. And now Isaiah ventures further. Now we come to the familiar verse. Verse 6. Let's read it. Verses 6 and 7. Our famous prophecy now given to us in its context. In the story itself. Look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Who or what is this light? A child. A son. Even more personal. This child would be from the throne of David. And if it had at all been obscure up until this point, once Isaiah points out the throne of David, all of Judah were reminded, ah yes, this is that prophesied Messiah, the Christ of God, The Savior of God who would come and who would redeem our people and set up His kingdom. The people were very clear as to who this person would be. He would be the Redeemer from God to Israel, the Messiah. You and I, as we understand this Messianic prophecy today, we see it in Jesus Christ. There was no other since the time of 730 B.C. in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, in Galilee of the Gentiles, there was no no prophet, no teacher, 
No one of significance like Jesus Christ who could have possibly fulfilled what is written here. Unlike Isaiah 7.14, this prophecy has no second referent. In 7.14, we see Isaiah's son fulfilling it, and also we see it ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. In chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus is in mind. The Messiah, period, is in mind. And the names, look at the names ascribed to him. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, there's some uh, debate and discussion over how many names are actually listed here. If you notice in your New King James, you see a comma between Wonderful and Counselor. Uh, they de- delineate five names. Uh, the New American Standard and other English translations will eliminate that comma between Wonderful and Counselor and have four names. Uh, the Jewish Targum, which is an Aramaic translation of these, d- Delineate it into six names, and they have different commas and splices all over. It's not all that important, but the, 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 large, the large picture is this. The names ascribed here to Jesus, and I believe there are four. I believe there are compound names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These compound names are very significant. Again, don't forget the context when you read these names. Notice the first, Wonderful Counselor. What did we read in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20? What was Ahaz and Judah doing for counsel? They were going to the dead, seeking the dead among the living. God says, what are you doing? Unless that counsel is by the law and the testimony, it has no light in it. But I'm going to send you someone who is a wonderful counselor, whose counsel is light. The name ascribed to Jesus here is very intentional. All four of them are. Look at the second one. Mighty God. Mighty in reference to battle. A war-torn nation of Judah. Desperate. Desperate for national protection. What would they need in a Messiah? What would they need in a Redeemer? They would need a mighty one. Jesus here is described as the mighty God. A reference not only to his deity, El or Elohim in Hebrew, but also to his mightiness in warfare and battle. Third, the everlasting father. Ahaz, and this is a rather unusual name. We look at this name and we say, well, wait a minute. Does that mean Jesus is the everlasting father? Yes, that is the name being ascribed to him. That is the name being ascribed to him. And we shouldn't think of this in terms of, of the Trinity, of the triune relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But rather we should look upon this title as a designation of Jesus toward the nations, toward in particular the people of Israel. He is going to be a father to them. Unlike Ahaz who led his flock astray, Jesus is the timeless one, the timeless father whose paternal care is everlasting. Oh, the nation desperately needed a father figure as their king. And finally, a prince of peace. I cannot stress enough how much the the people of Judah wanted peace. They were exploited on every angle, namely due to their own uh, poor choices in judgment. They were faithless. They did not believe in God And they were exploited because of it, but the Messiah of Israel would bring peace. He would be a prince of peace. Finally, we see here he would carry the government upon his shoulders and there would be no end to his peaceful and just reign. 
the national hope of the Jews. That they would no longer be exploited, but that the Redeemer would come and carry the load of the government and govern justly and with peace. John Walford, in his summary sentence of this beautiful, beautiful prophecy, says this, and I think they're very fitting words. He says, The passage gathers in one statement the predictions of the Incarnation, the Deity, and eternity of the Messiah, the future government of peace on earth, the righteousness and justice of His kingdom, and the fact that the kingdom will fulfill the promises to David. Okay, how can we learn from this? How can you and I, 21st century American evangelical Christians, we say, boy, you know, this is a great story and all, but I just like to sing the song, For the government will be upon his shoulder. You want to sing it? Okay. I just want to sing the song and go about my Christmas. I got Christmas presents to buy. No, you know what? There is so much richness here. I'm going to suggest four, only four applications. We can learn from this. This is a beautiful prophecy. Notice the first application. King Ahaz and Judah sought out the council of pagan mystics and the alliance of pagan Assyria rather than relying on the Lord for counsel and protection. I ask you this. Who do you turn to in times of despair? Who do you turn to in times of despair? Remember Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Be careful of who you choose to counsel you. Secondly, King Ahaz was a wicked ruler whose unfaithfulness was costly to the nation of Judah. We should rejoice in the knowledge that King Jesus will one day rule the nations and peace and justice will prevail for eternity. Amen. Third, Isaiah prophesied in 730 B.C. Not only that Jesus would be born, chapter 9, verse 6, but also the location from which he would come, chapter 9, verse 1. Such fulfillment should bolster our confidence in the Lord and the reliability of his word. Friends, there is good reason to trust this book. I have 730 years of reasons to trust this book in this one passage. An amazing prophecy. And fourth and finally, the prophecy of Jesus in Isaiah 9, 1-7 still awaits. Still awaits its final fulfillment in the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is cause for hope and anticipation of Jesus' return to earth to establish His kingdom of peace and justice. You know, much of which we read today, I don't, again, I can't dig into this too intricately because we do need to see the larger picture But much of this is yet to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is coming again. And while his first advent, we saw many spiritual aspects of the kingdom of God. We saw transformed hearts. We saw the message of the cross of Jesus Christ and the beauty of forgiveness and reconciliation. But Jesus did not institute his kingly rule as such as described by Isaiah. That is yet to come. And you and I will enjoy the benefits of that good and precious King Jesus. We should rejoice in that. I hope that you have understood the process of this precious gem in Isaiah 9, chapter 6.
chapter 9, verse 6. I hope that you have appreciated the history behind it. What is behind this beautiful Christ prophecy? May we always look at Scripture as in its context, as a history. There's always something more than just putting a bookmark in our books that says, For unto us a child is born. That passage is so much more precious when we look upon it as we have looked upon it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the beauty of your word. It is magnificent. It causes us to be filled with awe as we consider that prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Prophecies that were given 700 years prior to his birth. Father, that gives us confidence and hope in your word and in you. Father, I, we're, we're at the Christmas season. This is a time to celebrate your son. And we honor him and we celebrate his birth. Father, if there be anyone in this room who is hearing about your son perhaps for the first time, or perhaps is, is sensing in their spirit that you are opening up their eyes, helping them to see that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, and that indeed by placing our faith in him, we can be saved and have eternal life. Father, if there's anyone in this room today that has that nudging of you in their heart, I pray, Father, that they would respond to you. I pray that they would believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, for redemption. He is the Savior of the world. He is the reason we celebrate this Christmas time. Thank you for the precious gift of your Son. We pray your blessings upon us now as we conclude our service. In Jesus' name, amen.